Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. You already knew that. That's our text. Navigate over there on your device or open your old school Bible. The topic, not knowing exactly what to expect, Nehemiah goes from gate to gate along Jerusalem's ruined wall. The title of our message, Gate Expectations. Let's pray. Father, thanks for being here. You said that you would walk amongst the church when we gather. Of course, we know that our own bodies, those of us that are saved, are the temples of the Holy Spirit as well. Every week I ask for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher because that's the real teaching that we need, that teaching that goes uh, deep within us, Lord, divides between the soul and the spirit where no one else can minister to us but you. We want to understand Nehemiah in his time and context and also see what it means to us today. We thank you. We praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You might remember Florida Senator Marco Rubio joking about the small size of Donald Trump's hands at a campaign rally in Virginia. He later offered a public apology, said that wasn't the real him. Trump's online detractors use hashtags like hashtag tiny Trump or hashtag tiny hands. And apparently the president is very sensitive about it. There are claims that his camp digitally alters the length of his fingers in the media that they release. I can't help but thinking of E.T. in his red finger. <laughs> if I was the president, I would do that. I would wear a fake E.T. finger. Fake news, phone home. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> the uh, tiny hands debate actually goes back to an article written more than 30 years ago. At last, the issue can be resolved. There's a website that allows you to print out the actual outline of Donald Trump's left hand. It was created based on a bronzed handprint hanging in the New York branch of Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. Are Trump's hands really hashtag tiny? Not exactly. At 7.25 inches long, they're only slightly smaller than average. Now, Nehemiah, twice in chapter 2, refers to the hand of God in verses 8 and 18. The hand of God was and it would be upon him as he journeyed to Jerusalem and as he rallied the Jews to rebuild its wall. It's a good backdrop for us to discuss the hand of God in our lives and to recall with exceeding joy that we who are in Christ are in fact God's handiwork. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, it is because you are his handiwork that God's hand is shown by you. And number two, it is because you are his handiwork that God's hand is upon you. So let's take a look first of all at God's hand being shown by us. Now, I am art ignorant, and by that I mean I don't recognize most paintings or sculptures. I can probably pick the Mona Lisa out of a lineup as long as the girl with the pearl earring isn't in there with her. Then I'm stuck. Artists have a certain style that makes them recognizable to a discerning eye. In the 1960s, Andy Warhol pioneered pop art showcasing a collection of paintings that focused on mass-produced commercial goods. When you see his art, you say, that's an Andy Warhol. Same thing can be true of other media, such as film. The live-action Dumbo was recently released. People say it's from the imagination of Tim Burton. They recognize his handprints on that film. Do you ever think of God as an artist? In Psalm 19, famous first verse, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. 
Now, in the New Testament, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul says of believers, we are God's handiwork. The word translated handiwork there is the Greek word poema, so we always think poem. But the word can actually mean most any kind of artistic and creative work. Creation is the handiwork of God. So are you as his new creature in Christ. What is God making you? The better question would be, who is God making you? Because we read in Romans that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It doesn't mean that a person is predestined before they are born to either heaven or hell. It means that after you are born again, it is your destiny to become like Jesus. And he who began that work in you will perform it until you see him face to face. Since Christians are God's handiwork, even before we are completed, others ought to see God's style through our lives. They should, by looking at us or by listening to us, be able to say, I'm pretty sure that's a Jesus. So Nehemiah gets ridiculed by opponents of God's work. He lets them know that they are seeing the master at work in and through him and that God's work will, in fact, prosper. And so we start in verse 9. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Ezra journeyed, he refused an armed escort. He made a big deal about it. He thought it would detract from the testimony of God's ability to provide for and to protect the caravan. He had made statements about God's hand upon them. And he thought, well, if I ask for an army, they'll say, oh, yeah, they got there safely because... The army went with them, and so he refused an escort. Did Nehemiah therefore lack faith? I'd rather think that he was led differently. Bible characters were led by God in all kinds of different ways. Some of them seem logical. Others seem extremely odd, to say the least. But all of them were designed by God or used by God for maximum spiritual effect. Joseph and his leading provides a great example Sold by his brothers into slavery, wrongfully imprisoned, then forgotten there, he was suddenly raised to second only to Pharaoh. In the end, he saw God's unusual leading and declared, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about my, uh, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And, and so great story as long as you're not Joseph, right? Sold by your brother, first thrown into a pit, left for dead, then sold into slavery, then falsely accused, then imprisoned, and then forgotten there, and then finally raised to second only to Pharaoh. I don't know about you, but if I was a Hebrew man, I wouldn't want to be second to Pharaoh. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with Pharaoh. And so even that, you think, oh, wow, he finally made it. Yeah, not really. Uh, It was all God's leading. And what a weird leading to get to a place where he could save the people of Israel during that great famine. We're all being conformed to the image of Jesus, but our paths will be very different because we each are unique. Another example real quick, uh, New Testament church, Herod decides he's going to arrest James. He arrests him, cuts his head off. Everybody's excited about that. So he arrests Peter, thinks he's going to cut his head off. God sends an angel to spring Peter from jail. Why James? Why Peter? Uh, both led in different directions because of what the Lord was doing in their lives and through their lives to others. And so one application of this, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but while we are to comfort others with the comfort we've received in Christ, 
And while we are to counsel others, and those are all great biblical things to do, be careful that you don't think that someone else's experience is exactly like yours. It can't be because of what they bring to it. And always remember that the human heart, what we call the heart, the mind, will, soul, the emotions, very complicated thing. Hard to really understand. We don't understand our own hearts, and so it's hard for someone else to understand what we're really going through. So uh, just, you know, when push comes to shove, just read the Bible. Just quote the Bible to people and find the appropriate stories and be careful about telling them exactly what is going on in their life because sometimes we just don't know. The certainty of God's handiwork in my life assures me I am on the path that will best accomplish his work in me. And so you understand what I mean is that sometimes we all wonder why is this happening, what happened, what's going on. We can back up, not just say, well, God is sovereign, he'll do whatever he wants, but we can back up and say, wait a minute, God said I was his new creation. He is molding me, he is shaping me, he is firing me, he is doing things in my life to make me more like Jesus. So even though I have no idea what he's doing or why, I am absolutely 100% confident that this is part of my predestination to be like Jesus Christ. Now, I disagree with God all the time about the things that he allows into my life. Uh, but um, no, no joke there, I guess. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, don't you? I mean, you know, th- some of the things God allows you think, this isn't going to make me more like Jesus. I'll tell you, Lord, what's going to make me more like Jesus is having a million dollars and driving a Maserati. And those kinds of things. And then I'll, I'll give uh, most of it away and I'll give rides to the homeless. How's that? You know, that kind of thing. And, and so uh, it, those aren't my real plans. You know, I, I would take a Ferrari. But uh, anyway, uh, you, you disagree and you think, well, you know, you're all on Twitter page trying to figure it out. And then God, you have to remember, this is the master at work in my life, making me more like his son. I'm sure of that. So I can be just as sure that what I'm going through is his procedure. And as with Joseph, he works everything together for the good. Everything isn't good, but he works it together for the good. Verse 10, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. These guys are going to dog Nehemiah the whole time he's there. Their plots will be pretty sinister. We'll see a lot more of them later on in the book. Are people plotting against you? Well, just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Seriously, sometimes it feels like certain individuals oppose you every opportunity they get. I think you should expect it rather than be shocked by it. Hopefully, they oppose you for seeing a Jesus in progress, which offends their conscience. Pray for them and minister to them. They need who you have. Another way of saying this is that you need to remember that things going on at home, at work, at school, wherever you are, There is also a spiritual dimension to it that you don't always tap into or see. You're you're not just an employee or an employer. Uh, There's a warfare going on at your place of business or in your career or with your customers or however you want to put it. There's something spiritual going on in their hearts. And especially since you're a Christian and people are looking at you and seeing a Jesus, so the devil's going to put pressure on you to make you act like a not-Jesus to make you act like everybody else and react like everybody else and seem like everybody else so that those people watching you can say, being a Christian makes no difference. Why would I want to give up my Sundays uh, to be just like I am now? And, and so there's always more going on, and that'll help you too. When you get down and you're worried about things and anxious, you think, oh, wait a minute, 
Probably more is going on here that I don't see. I guess I should pray for those people because they need the Lord. The most exciting verse, uh, excuse me, line in verse 10, a man had come. God sent a man through whom he might work and thereby show others his handiwork. God has chosen to work through men and women and children who have received Jesus Christ. I always think about that because he has better, more powerful, more faithful servants, for example, with the angels. They would accomplish a lot more. Uh, I, I think if an angel delivered a sermon here on a Sunday morning, it'd be pretty powerful. First, we'd all bow down and he'd have to say, get up, you're gonna get me in trouble. Now listen to what I have to say. And we would uh, think, okay, as long as it wasn't the angel of light who you know, appeared to Joseph Smith. But anyway. <sighs> I don't know, these things just fly into my head. and I should wear a foil hat is what I need <laughs> from the movie Signs. I should wear a foil hat to keep these intrusive thoughts. I like, but I'm simultaneously terrified by something the Apostle Paul said. You remember he said, follow me as I follow Christ. The gist of that is not that we be more like Paul, really, but that we be like Jesus, whom Paul follows. He's telling us that it's possible. We should show him in our actions, in our reactions, in our words, and in our walk. If you want a slightly different art analogy, in another New Testament passage we read, you are our epistle or our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. We are literature, like God's poem, and we are being read by others. So let's drop down to verse 19 and keep with Sanballat and Tobiah. Uh, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? And so now these opponents are joined by a third guy, Geshem. They're ridiculed, they're falsely accused. If you haven't experienced these, just wait, you will. Sticks and stones can break your bones. Words will break your spirit if you're not careful. But the only words that matter in the long run are Jesus' promises to you found in Scripture. You really can let his word overcome the words of men. And eventually you want to hear his words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so maybe you're feeling lonely sometime in your life. Maybe you're feeling unloved, like nobody loves you. Those are things that people go through. I, I understand that. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I remember my pastor in San Bernardino, John Miller, whenever he taught that section, he would say in the, the verb tense is actually, I never, no, not ever, ever will leave you or forsake you. And we're told that he loves you with a pure and everlasting love proven at the cross of Calvary. Because you can't physically touch him, do you think that his presence in your life is not enough? I, I'm trying to not be insensitive, but really there is a sense in which you can never be lonely because you're never alone. The Holy Spirit indwells you if you're a Christian. And you can never feel unloved unless you don't believe the Bible and think that Jesus doesn't love me. Well, but then you say, well, but Jesus isn't here right now. Uh, he's not a flesh and blood person that I can touch right now. I submit to you that having the indwelling spirit is better than that. I'm not saying you shouldn't have friends or you, sh you don't need human contact or that we should all leave here and become hermits or there's a lot of attic space up here where we could probably hang out, you know, that kind of thing. I'm just trying to encourage those of you who get in the doldrums and think nobody loves me, 
I'm lonely. From a human perspective, that's absolutely true. From a spiritual perspective, it can never be true once you're a Christian. And that should lift you up enough to see the Lord. Let him be the lifter of your head. Look into his eyes and let him protect and keep you. And so verse 20, so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. You have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah had a godly confidence that the wall would be rebuilt. He spoke boldly about Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem's true spiritual condition. He says, you have nothing to do with this work. When we present the gospel, it's only good news if folks know there is bad news. So much today, and even in evangelical churches, the gospel is something like, come to Jesus because he'll give you a better life. Uh, he'll give you his, your best life, that kind of a thing. And, and you know, there, there has to be some mention of the bad news. And the bad news is, you and I, before we know Christ, are already condemned to perish in a Christless eternity in a place called the lake of fire because of sin. Uh, we inherit sin, we commit individual acts of sin uh, throughout our lifetime, and unless we're born again, we will die a spiritual death that separates us from God. And so that, that has to come across. And then, once you understand that, you think, well, I need to be saved. You know, people who, they need to know they need to be saved in order to want to be saved. And so we want to preach with a confidence and a boldness and at some point, when people know you're a Christian, they need to know it's because you were a sinner, but now you've been justified by uh, God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't offering you a better life or your best life. He's offering you eternal life in heaven rather than in hell. Everyone would see God's work that the wall would be rebuilt, and it would be rebuilt in only 52 days. It lay in there for many, many, many years People would go by and probably uh, mock God and be disparaging about God. And then all of a sudden, 52 days go by and that wall is there and people would say, oh my, God is with those people. It must have been the Six-Day War in 1967. After Israel's decisive victory, my dad, not a believer, said to me, those are God's people. And so even a confirmed non-believer like my father understood that God was at work in the nation of Israel, he could see that that was a God. You individually, you're the temple of God on the earth. We collectively are the temple of God on the earth. The age we live in between the ascension of Jesus to heaven and his return to resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture those alive at his coming, it's the story of us as we have been entrusted with the treasure of the gospel in these earthen vessels. Let's put it in question form for each of us to ask and answer today in our devotional time, when people look at me or when they look at us as a church, do they see a Jesus at work? Number two, it's because you are his handiwork that God's hand is shown by you. God's handprints would be all over the walls of Jerusalem, as I said. Nehemiah was careful to keep the focus on the Lord. God wasn't gonna rebuild the walls himself. He would do it through a man leading other men. Whether it was Noah or Abraham or Moses or Joshua, Peter or Paul or John, Wesley or Whitfield or Graham or Smith, God works through men and women and children whom he saves and empowers. Read these remaining verses, not so much though about the walls, but about God's handiwork upon Nehemiah. 
And so verse 11, going back up, I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. I'm not sure if this meant, uh, is meant to be read as a delay, uh, that it took him three days, or that it's saying it only took him three days to recover from this long four-month journey and get it together. Some work for God requires urgency. Other work requires waiting. In your life, you're going to experience both, and they are designed to reveal different things about where you are in your walk with the Lord. Uh, and so something that uh, you maybe want to do, will you, you'll be put on hold, and you'll be called to wait so that God can work some things out. Maybe you're not ready. Can you honestly look back on your life and think, yeah, I wasn't ready for that? I mean, I can do that all the time. And, and so I think if we're honest with us, see, I'm glad God didn't do that. Some of you guys, think of your first girlfriend. Ugh. And then go home and tell your wife you love her because you could, it, it could have been horrible unless your wife is your first girlfriend and I'm really, I'll give you a list of other churches that aren't so insensitive. But anyway. <laughs> Verse 12. Then I arose in the night. And uh, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. Nehemiah led a secret survey group under cover of darkness. In an effort to be stealthy, the only animal was the one he rode, probably a donkey, while the few men proceeded on foot. Even more super spy-like, it seems no one, not even these guys, knew what he had returned to do at this point. It was a practical strategy Nehemiah knew what God wanted to do and would do. He didn't need to consult with the locals. This wasn't going to be a discussion. They weren't going to take a vote. There wasn't going to be a town hall meeting where Nehemiah said, hey, do you guys think it's a good idea to build this wall? Uh, Who's in favor of building the wall? And let's open it up for discussion now. Now, he's going to make an announcement. We'll see. We are going to build the wall. God's hand is upon us. Let's go. And uh, very powerful, very spiritual. Why take anyone along? I don't know. Except that even though there would be no discussion, support would be needed, and Nehemiah seemed to be discipling these guys to that end. And so it's functioning the way a a regular group of believers would function. Uh, He was the leader, and he had some disciples, and they were going to help him to disseminate this information, and people were going to rally because it was a good work. It was a good work for the Lord. He wasn't asking them to do anything that they shouldn't do or that they shouldn't have already accomplished. And uh, so he proceeded according to God's plan. Most of us pray at some point or another, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can think of that prayer in terms of a secret survey where we're accompanied by God the Holy Spirit. These honest appraisals are one of the key ways God molds and uh, shapes you as his handiwork. Just remember to be honest. Remember that we have a a real propensity to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, even to ourselves. And sometimes we miss something that God might be trying to tell us about our insensitivities. Got it. I got it, Lord. I will never make jokes like that again. And... um, Uh, that kind of a thing. But you know what I mean. Be honest and and be open. The Lord's not going to say anything that would hurt you. We all like to think, tell me the truth, I can take it. And and I I don't know how many times, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said that to me in a counseling session, I would have a Maserati. Uh, But, uh, and then they say, and then I say, yeah, you're an idiot. Oh, well, wait a minute. Based on what? 
based on what your wife just said and what you just said and you arguing me uh, with me, you're, you're an idiot. Well, I don't think so. Well, when you think so, then your problem will be better off. And that kind of, that's how it goes. And uh, that's why I normally only have one session with people. But anyway, <laughs> I've never called anybody an idiot. No, I haven't. <laughs> There's other words that are much more intellectual. Uh, now, I wasn't, let's see, he went, blah, 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 Okay, I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate, re, uh, viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. I wasn't able to find much data on the original walls of Jerusalem or after Nehemiah's rebuild. I did run across a detailed description of the walls when they were rebuilt in the 16th century by the Ottomans. The length of the walls was two and a half miles. Their average height, 40 feet. Average thickness, eight feet. The wall contains 34 watchtowers and seven main gates. And so this is a nearly insurmountable task as evidenced by the fact no one was actually working on the wall. You might think, Gene, nobody looks at me and sees a Jesus. That may be true, it may be not true. You might feel like you're that project in your garage under the blankets with the boxes piled on top that was started years ago only to be abandoned, that nothing's really going on in your life. But as I said, he who began the work of conforming you into his image, he's promised he will complete it. You should let that refresh you and get back to cooperating with the Lord. When it seems he is not doing anything, he is. You just don't see it and you are impatient. Great art takes time. I mentioned the Mona Lisa, which is actually kind of small. I used to think it was this massive painting. It's a little tiny thing. Leonardo da Vinci worked on the Mona Lisa on and off for about 15 years. I could do it through the numbers thing in just a few minutes, you know, but uh, so great art. Michelangelo, I think, painted the Sistine Chapel ceiling for many, many years. And so God has, from our point of view, a lot of years to work with. From his point of view, he's working pretty rapidly because a thousand days with the Lord is like, you know, one day and one day is like a thousand years. But um, he's working in your life. And when he doesn't see, when you don't see him working, he really is. A lot of you do crafts. I'm not crafty. My wife is crafty. Some of you are crafty. You paint something, what happens next? You need to let it dry. You can't paint over it usually, otherwise you ruin it. So there are going to be times in your life when, as God's painting, you're drying. But there's never going to be a time in your life when God has writer's block and just doesn't know what comes next. Golly, Michael, what do you think comes next in Gene's life? I don't know. You're God. That kind of thing, it's not going to happen. And so when God isn't actively working, he really is working to make you more like Jesus. And that is something that, well, just think about who you are right now and how hard of a task that really is. How very difficult it is to take you in your uh, fleshly body and make you like the Lord. It's, It's quite a task, but he's doing it. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. The ruin and rubble was extensive in some areas, but it did not dissuade Nehemiah. God's handiwork in our lives can be interrupted by apathy or by sin, backsliding, and the ruin of those things can be extensive. But it doesn't dissuade Jesus, who offers forgiveness upon repentance and restoration and continues the work. And then verse 15, I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Nehemiah could only go so far before he was forced to turn back. He seems to be presenting the situation as way more difficult than he had thought. A couple of thoughts on that. And so he committed to something, and now it was going to be really, really difficult. 
you might get to a point in your life where the things you committed to get a lot more difficult than you thought. Marriage is the easy example. Everybody goes into marriage thinking it's going to be a piece of cake because you're in love, and then trouble can follow. I don't like to talk about that much at the wedding ceremony. Uh, I've been to a lot of uh, wedding ceremonies that I didn't officiate, and usually it goes something like this. Uh, you know, Dick, Jane, marriage is hard. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. There's going to be days when you wake up and look over at each other and say, what did I do? How am I going to get through this? Marriage is a great institution, but who wants to live in an institution for the rest of their life? It's going to be so hard. And it goes on for like 15 or 20 minutes like that until I want to leave or barf or something, you know, and then, and then at the very end, it's like, but Jesus, he's there to help you. And so make sure you walk with the Lord. All right. You're ready to exchange vows? No. How about we think this through now? Nobody told me it was going to be like this, but sadly, some marriages get like that. Are you going to remain committed and vowed? I mean, you know, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're the one that changed. You're the one that made the commitment. And the difficulty of the situation isn't really the point if God is involved. In fact, the more difficult something seems, the more God can be glorified. I want all the easy trials. I, I believe I deserve them. But God's going to give you the trials and the troubles that you need to become more like Christ. And so instead of thinking, oh, why, Lord, what, what did I do in order to you know, earn this trial, think, oh, Lord, what are you doing that you entrusted me with this that it will make me somehow more like Jesus Christ? Because that's all I really care about anyway. It's just a different way of thinking about the same thing. I shouldn't have to tell you that it is in the furnace, it's in the press, it's in the storm where God's handiwork is refined. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or others who did the work. Nehemiah's arrival had been a pretty big event. Here he was, the servant of the Persian king, with letters from the king, escorted by an elite military force. That was a big deal in uh, ancient Israel. Nehemiah let anticipation grow until he'd make his big reveal. When is the last time you thought about God's big reveal of us? In 2 Thessalonians 1.10, we read this. When he comes in that day, and that's, that day here is his second coming, to be glorified in his saints and be admired among all those who believe. What Paul is saying there is that at his second coming, when we return with Jesus, he is glorified through the lives of believers whom he has transformed by making us saints out of sinners. He reveals us in our completed state to those on the earth and to each other to show his ultimate handiwork. And so you and I are like a piece of art that's going to have a big reveal. You ever been to something like that where they pull the curtain back and, or they take the, you know, the, the cover off and everybody goes, oh, wow, what an amazing sculpture that is. What a beautiful painting that is. That's a great example of a Jesus. And so we are all collectively and individually, we're going to be revealed one day as God's completed work. Verse 17, I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Nehemiah may have said more than this. I rather think this was all he said 
it was certainly all that needed to be said. Uh, I've been telling you off and on for some years now, less is often more when it comes to presenting the gospel and talking about the Lord. And so Nehemiah basically said, you know the walls should be rebuilt, they're in ruin, it's a reproach, let's rebuild them right now. And you know, there's, he didn't need any arguments because all of his words were truth and they were the words of God as it were uh, motivating the people. And then I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. The king of kings and the king were both in support with greater emphasis on God, of course. And the people set their hands to the work. But again, it's in the context of the hand of God being upon Nehemiah and by extension upon them. And because his hand was upon them, because they were his handiwork, then they would get the work done. In the work, you are the work. This is so important. It's hard for me to even describe, but in the work, you are the work. And so whether it's ministry or going to your job or wherever God has you, where you are his minister, where you're his ambassador, his representative, and while you think about the work there of sharing Christ and doing ministry or whatever it is, when things are going bad or not according to plan or your plan doesn't work, remember, you are the work within the work. God is using the circumstances around you in order to mold and shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we get our eyes on the work and we think I should be able to go to work and establish a Bible study and see all of my coworkers get saved one by one. And that would be a great thing. That happens sometimes. There's other times when you try and establish something and your boss calls you in and say, I don't want to hear the name of Jesus one more time unless it's a cuss word. And then you're stuck. You remember, you are the work within the work and whatever is going on around you, God says, I can use this to mold and shape you to be more like Jesus. What I need for you to do is to be pliable material. If I'm a master potter right now, I need you to be pliable clay and represent Jesus in this situation. This won't always be like this. We'll move on to other things later. And it's a beautiful way of looking at things to know that you're the work within the work. The master poet, the master potter, the master builder, the master metalsmith, the master goldsmith, the master silversmith, the master gardener, Jesus is the true master of the arts. And you really are his masterpiece. Let's pray.